Hi, welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios in Bolivar, West Virginia. I'm Dennis Stark. No, wait a minute, that's not right. I'm Phil Bernberg. Today we're going to be talking about errors in pottery, specifically myths, errors, and misconceptions. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Last time we talked about um, glaze defects, so today we're going to be discussing basically incorrect information that has worked its way into, potter, into the field of pottery. There's a lot of misinformation out there online, in print, books and magazines, so-called common knowledge, just things that everybody, everybody sort of knows, and even misprints that maybe are not really, you couldn't really say that they're, they're intentional or there's misinformation, but the results can be quite serious, even from a, a simple misprint. And an example of that, there's a really well-known pottery book in which there's, there's the discussion of colorants that you can put into clay bodies, and the use of iron chromate is suggested. This is not a good idea because iron chromate is a known carcinogen. So I suspect what they, were talk what they wanted was iron chromite. I'll put the formulas on the board here. And there's a big difference in the two. And so there's, there's a huge potential, potential health hazard or difference. If, I don't know whether this was an intentional misprint or just a, a common misconception, but iron chromate looks like this. For all you people that love chemical formulas, And iron chromite, that's the symbol for iron, iron chromite, one letter difference is this. Iron chromite is a nice, is a nice black pigment. It's sort of a dark black-brown pigment. Um, and it's, there's no, there's, it's perfectly safe. Iron chromate, this contains hexavalent chromium that sort of thing that you hear about is being, this is a known carcinogen. So this is an example, this is just a simple typo in a well-known book, or I'm assuming it's a typo, but I don't know, I don't know what, but anyway, this one simple mistake, and this can have serious consequences. So this is why some of these, some of these errors and things can be quite serious. I've built up quite a collection of these myths and, and mistakes over the years, probably enough to, to go on and talk like this for a couple of days, which we obviously don't have time for today, so we're gonna, I'm going to try to talk about some of the more common ones that you hear. And also some good ideas. Some, some, some of the misconceptions are not totally wrong. There's, there's a part of it which is reasonable, and then the rest of it isn't. So we'll, we'll try to point that out. So first of all, let's talk about, um, I've got one here. Here's some examples related to clay and forming, the, the early part of the, again, trying to do this in sort of the sequence in which you would, you would talk about things in, in pottery. So first of all, there's the idea of when people are throwing clay on the wheel, of coning the clay up. And one of the claims that I've heard for that is that it's good because you're aligning the clay particles. And this is where, as far as at least for what I understand about clay in my background, I don't believe it. Because yes, moving the clay is important when you're centering the clay. Because if you think about it, if you're pushing the clay in toward the center, 
it has to be able to go somewhere. It can't just go in toward the center. So by coning it up, you're helping the clay to move. So it's a good idea when you're centering anyway to push in and up to help the clay move. But as far as aligning the particles, I don't think that matters personally because when you're throwing the clay and you've got the, the walls of the pot down to a quarter of an inch or a normal pot thickness, you're putting such a, a different kind of force on the clay that you're changing the orientation. So I don't believe that that any or little or any of the orientation that you create during coning persists in the final pot. I think the coning may be useful to a limited extent to help with the centering, but I don't think it really matters as far as orienting the clay particles. Let me clear this off here. Okay, so then another one, the there are a lot of, there's a lot, of, a lot of information or misinformation surrounding this, and that's the causes of S-cracks. And an S-crack, if you look down on the inside of a thrown pot, um, will look like, it'll look like that. It's a crack in the center, very often a dust, like this is underneath, this is the rim, and this is maybe the bottom. It doesn't usually go out to the, all the way out to the outside. And there's a lot, there are a lot of reasons that are quoted for this. Um, I've, and again, these are things that I've picked up from different sources, from talking to people or from, even from the literature magazines. One of the causes was ascribed as if you throw the clay onto the bat too hard when you're, before you're just putting the clay in, that that can lead to S-cracks. Um, or that the absorbency of the bat, whether it's a plaster bat or a, or, or a non-absorbent bat like, like plastic, whether that can contribute to it. Or even the moisture content of the clay, whether if it's too, the moisture content is too high, that can contribute to it. And then there are, those are the causes. And then there's some other ideas about preventing S-cracks, that if you, cut the, if, you, if you cut the clay off the bat with a wire, that will eliminate the cracks. Um, if you smooth out the bottom of the clay before you put it on the bat, that will prevent the cracks. If you slow down the drying speed, that will prevent the cracks. Basically, none of those are true. They don't work. Now, there are a couple that can help. One of them is if you change the clay. Well, yeah, that's reasonable because you'll see when we talk in a minute that the real cause of this is a difference in drying between the outside of the pot and the center of the pot and also a difference in compression. So some clay bodies may may, just because of their nature, may dry more uniformly and more easily than others. So yes, there is something to the fact that if you change the clay, you might, even with the same technique, same bad technique, you might lessen the occurrence of S-cracks. And yes, there is something to the absorbency of the bats. If the, if the absorbency of the bats contributes to a difference in drying between the upper part of the pot and the lower by absorbing the moisture, then it can contribute to it. And, and also another one is, is ribbing or compressing the inside of the bottom of the pot. That definitely does contribute to the preventing actually S-cracks. The real causes of S-cracks are, let me draw another sort of a side view of a pot here. The real causes of S-cracks or if you don't compress the bottom, when, you, when you're throwing the pot on the, on the wheel, you tend to align the little platelets like that. And if you don't compress the bottom, the clay particles in the bottom still tend to be randomly oriented. What this means is, and we talked about this before when we talked about, when we talked about the clay properties, is the fact that the individual little clay particles don't shrink in, the same, in different directions the same amount. So, there's going to be a difference in shrinkage between the clay particles in the bottom that are oriented randomly and the clay particles in the walls that are oriented parallel to the walls. And what happens is that when you're, when the pot, if the pot is sitting like this and the upper part of the pot 
dries, it starts to get toward leather hard, and the bottom is, is less likely to dry. It's maybe it's, it's close to the bat, and it's protected from the air. The upper part shrinks, and it's able to squeeze the lower part together. Now when the lower part wants to shrink, when it finally, when it, when it starts drying down here, and it wants to pull in the sides of the pot, it can't because the sides of the pot have already gotten rigid. Well, that's not gonna stop that clay from shrinking, but it can't pull in the sides of the clay, so the only thing that can happen is that sort of window of clay in the bottom tears itself apart. It will shrink, it tends to pull away from the rim of dried, more dried clay that it's around it, and all it can do is, it all it can do is crack. The only, the only reason why it forms an S-crack is that that's the direction that the clay was dragged when it was thrown on the wheel. If, this, if I made the exact same shape of a pot and I made it out of slabs that weren't thrown, that were, that were just rolled, the crack would be straight. So the only reason I'd still get a crack because the clay is still trying to shrink on the bottom and it's trying to pull away, it's trying to pull these walls in with the shrinkage, but it can't because these have already stiffened, so it, it tears itself apart. So there are a lot of, so there are some things I mentioned like late changing the clay. You might find a clay body that is, that tends to dry a little more easily and a little less subject to differences in drying. So that, that can help. Um, okay, another, another um, thing that you hear about is trapped air pockets in clay can cause a pot to blow up in the high firing. Basically, and the, I guess the idea is the fact that the, the trapped air in the pocket of clay Basically, the air expands when the pot gets hot and blows the pot up. That's baloney, because you can't generate enough air pressure from that air to do it. What it really relates to, and this is, this is interesting with a lot of these things, there is some factual basis to some of these, but it's sort of gotten distorted over time. And so there is a potential problem, there is a potential problem with air pockets in the bisque firing, if you're heating the bisque, the, the clay too quickly, and you're starting to, and some, and some water can accumulate in the pocket and then change the steam, yes, then the, the pocket or that void can contribute to blowing up due to the steam, because when water changes to steam, it expands about 1,200 times in volume. So basically, when you have an instantaneous change from water to steam, you basically have a bomb or the potential for a bomb. Think of a pressure cooker. So, um, in that case, it's the steam formation that, that accumulates in the pocket that can blow it up. Once you've gotten through the bisque, there's no problem at all. And I've seen this a lot. I've seen pots that we've intentionally broken in half that we created, we purposely created pockets in them. And when you break them in half, the pot, the pot survives just fine because the air does not expand nearly as enough and create enough pressure to blow them up on the high firing. So yes, air pockets can lead to a problem in the bisque but not in the high firing. Once they survive the bisque, it's not a problem. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for The Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, another, another, these, and there's not necessarily any relationship among these different things that I'm talking about. These are just sort of part of my random collection of, of ideas. Um, 
Another thought that I heard was that somebody was talking about making, and I've heard this several times, making teapots and make, or making tea serving sets out of earthenware. And they felt that the red earthenware was better for, than making a teapot out of stoneware because it held the heat longer because of all the iron in the, in the clay. Also, not, a, not, not really true. The real reason why, but it is true, see this is the part of it, the, real, the red earthenware probably would hold the heat better than stoneware, but the reason why it would hold the heat was because it's not dense. It's the porosity in the red earthenware that acts like insulation, and so it holds the heat better. It has nothing to do with the iron, or very little to do with the iron. It's mostly due to the fact that, that the, 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 the earthenware is porous, and the porosity is, is what's essentially insulating the, the clay. The clay. So the and this is, this is true of all insulation. There's an old saying that the best possible insulator for heat is air, is air spaces. So all these little air spaces in the clay basically prevent the heat from sort of leaking out from the, from the pot. Another, another, this is a feel, another one that's really common that you hear is the fact that people will talk about when they're joining clay, they're putting handles or other appendages on pots, or maybe they're hand building and they're assembling pieces of slabs. They'll, they'll, take, they'll add vinegar to the slip, or they'll just take vinegar and water and use that to join the pieces. And a lot of people claim that it works a lot better than, than anything else, than, water, than plain water. And I guess this is where I'm a little puzzled because vinegar, ideally what you'd like to do is when you make a joint and you add clay at a joint, you don't want that clay in the joint to, to shrink a lot. Because if, if it shrinks a lot and the clay around it doesn't, again, that can lead to a possible crack. So what you'd like is that whole joint area with the added clay to shrink at the same rate. So what you'd really like is you'd really like a slip that doesn't shrink much when it dries. Well, the problem is when you add vinegar to clay, it flocculates the clay. It makes the clay fluffier, which essentially would make it shrink more. So I'm, I'm a little puzzled as to why vinegar would make it work better. What, I'd, what, I'd act, what you'd like to do actually is have a deflocculated clay, which means you could have more clay in the, same, in the slip and still have the same consistency and less water. It would, it would, make, the, it would make a sort of runnier behavior, behavior. So I'm a little puzzled as to why vinegar would make it work. And what I'm wondering is, is it the fact that maybe the person's technique is good, they've got a good joining technique, and they use the vinegar, and it's because their joining technique is working really well, not because the vinegar is contributing to anything. When I've talked to people about this, I'll say, well, did you ever take, a, do a test, a side-by-side -side test, and don't use the vinegar, and use the same technique on the same clay at the same day, and see if you have any difference? And generally, the answer is, well, no, because I know the vinegar works. So I'm a little suspicious as to whether, again, this is sort of a myth that the vinegar is actually helping, because at least scientifically, it seems like it shouldn't be helping, it should be hurting. Maybe it's really not making any difference at all. I don't know the answer to that. But there's, there's something a little fishy about the, about the idea about why it would be working. Okay, let's talk about, uh, here's, another, here's an idea related to drying of the clay. Um, one of the things I've heard is that, or read, is that sitting on a bat doesn't affect crack formation. Well, that's not true. Because again, if, it, if, if sitting on the bat slows down the drying of the bottom, then I have the possibility of this, the same thing that we talked about with the S-cracks, where the top of the pot is drying a lot faster than the bottom of the pot. And then when the bottom pot tries to, to, to dry and shrink and catch up, it can't. It's restrained by the upper part of the pot. So if, if the sitting on the bat doesn't 
make the bottom dry more slowly than the top, then, then, it, then that's true, then it doesn't affect it. But if it does, and I would think in most cases it would, that, that, that sitting on the bat um, would, would affect the possible crack formation. And to me, the best thing you can do when you're drying a work, any work, whether it's sculpture or anything, is turn it over. Um, when, when you make something out of clay, whatever is sticking up off the surface that it's resting on, whatever's sticking up and sort of out into the air is naturally going to, it's more exposed to the air, it's going to dry faster, and things that are sort of tucked under it and protected are not going to dry as quickly. So the best way to sort of assure that you get uniform drying is to expose all parts of the pot to the air. So the best thing you can do is, when you, if you have pots, for instance, thrown pots on a bat, as soon as they're stiff enough, is turn them over. As soon as the rim can support the weight, turn them over so that the bottom can dry. Then, by, by the very act of turning them over, the, the, the upside down, the tops now will be close to the bat. They won't dry as quickly as the rest of the pot that's sticking up in the air. So you give a chance for the bottom of the pot to catch up with the top of the pot. Um, another thing related to drying, is, is sometimes I've seen people where they, when they, after they, they make a joint, let's say they put a, a handle on a mug and they paint wax just on the joint and they say that that helps, that helps the, the joint from, from cracking. Well, it doesn't, in this case, it doesn't hurt, but what you're really trying to do is, especially with, a, with for instance, with a mug handle, is you're trying, to, you're trying to accommodate somehow the possible difference in drying between the handle and the body. So if I have a mug, And here's a mug body, and I've added a handle to it, is that assuming that I, I didn't do this when the mug, let's say, was sitting on the wheel. So the handle has now, typically what you would do is you would trim the mug, trim the body if you're going to trim the bottom, and now it's handleable, so it's leather hard, but I'm taking a fairly soft handle and joining it to it. So it's likely that the handle, at, once you join it, the handle is going to try to shrink more than the mug because the handle is wet or clay. So by just covering this, it's really not, with wax, it's really not solve, addressing the problem. What you really want to do is slow down the drying of the whole handle so that the handle doesn't shrink and basically separate where, uh, at the joints. So the best thing you can do is, is tint it, is cover up the whole mug and let the, let the, let the moisture sort of accumulate under the tent so that this that will slow down the drying of the handle and the body of the mug will actually pick up some of the moisture from the tent. What you'd really like to do is have them equalize. So once, it's, once, it's been, once they've sort of equalized, then you can uncover it a little bit at a time and let both of them dry. So the real problem you're facing is not just the joint. The joint, the separate the joint is only a symptom of the fact that the whole handle is shrinking more than the body. And so you want to do something to prevent the handle from continuing to shrink ahead of the body. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. Okay. So again, so putting the wax on the joints won't hurt, but it's really not going to adjust the, address the core problem. Okay, glazing. Let's talk about some things related to glazing. Well, there are a lot of stories out there about the hazards of glaze ingredients. And one of the, the sort of underlying themes is that if you get your hand in a glaze, that some of these potentially toxic materials can be absorbed through the skin. I'm not a, I'm not a, 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 a hygienist or, or, a, or a health professional, but 
there are, some, there are some basic information here that I think is incorrect. In most cases, unless you have an open cut or an open wound on your hand, that these, these materials, which again, most of them are not, they're not dissolved in the water. Remember, most of them, we, we purposely avoid water-soluble materials in most glazes. So in most glazes, it's just solid particles of minerals and chemicals floating around in the water, and they can't be absorbed through the skin. If there was a little bit of something in solution and you had an open cut, I guess it's possible that it could get in your bloodstream, but really, really unlikely. The, the, the real hazard with dealing with glazed materials is, is inhalation, is breathing the dust, and then they can get directly into your body. Or if you, I've seen people, for instance, they're making up glazes and they have half a sandwich resting on the edge of the bench. So they're weighing out their chemicals and they take a bite of the sandwich and then they go back to weighing out the chemicals. So ingesting the, the, the materials, or in inhaling them, that to me, that's the real hazard with these materials. Now there are some, there are some problems with some glazes with, with skin contact. There are some materials that you can develop a sensitivity to. For instance, that the first time you might come in contact with it on your skin, your body doesn't react to it, or at least it doesn't react immediately. And then the second time and later times when you're exposed to it, you get some kind of a reaction, like maybe a rash. And one of the, one of the materials that this is known in relation to this is, chrom is chromium oxide, green chrome oxide. Um, is that some people get a chromium sensitivity, like some also nickel. There are, there are people even, I think, with jewelry, for instance, they, they, they nickel sensitivities. So there's certain, some of these metals, you don't react immediately, but your body develops a sensitivity to them, and you might get a rash or an irritation on your skin. The other thing is that some of the materials, a few of the materials that are actually soluble in the, in the water of the glazes are incredibly um, alkaline, like, um, like soda ash, and wood ash are very alkaline and they can actually burn your skin. So you have to be careful that, and that's a case where if you were making up, let's say a carbon trap chino that had a lot of soda ash in it and you were to dip your hand in it and stir it or to feel it, it's possible that you could get a skin burned from it. Um, that would probably be the extent of it though. Um, just related to that, one more thing on the next step, <coughs> excuse me, when making up carbon trap chinos, I've seen it recommended sometimes where they say that the carbon trap chinos typically contain soda ash which, or sodium carbonate, which is the ingredient that helps the material form the carbon trapping because it melts early, is that you need to dissolve the soda ash in hot water before you make up the rest of the glaze. Well, that doesn't do any harm, but it's just it's an unnecessary step because soda ash is extremely soluble in water and you're not putting, you're usually only putting a fairly small percentage. I've seen in some cases maybe up to 10% or less, but nothing, you're not putting 50% of the glaze as soda ash. So I think in most cases, all of the soda ash can easily dissolve in the water with just a little stirring. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, it's an unnecessary step. I think we're gonna stop here for, we have, a, we have a number more of these topics that we're gonna talk about, so I think we're gonna, we're gonna have a part two and possibly a part three to this video. But we'll, we're gonna stop at this point. So I think, what I'd like to say, anyway, I hope to this point the discussion has been useful. If you enjoyed the presentation, please like it and subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends and other potters. This helps our videos get found on YouTube. Also check out our website, www.hfclay.com. We thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts. And if you'd like to consider becoming a patron, go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. So the next topic in this series will be a continuation of this, of this topic of myths, errors, and misconceptions. Thank you for visiting with us today.
Chatter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.